This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. Getting a little feedback right now, but we're going to work that out. It is Friday, March 3rd, 2023. And we're going to have a snowstorm here in Chicago today. Not in Minneapolis, St. Paul, but here. So everybody, please take care. In Chicago, we'll have a high of 38 degrees. There will be snow. And we'll see how much we're going to get, see how much of it's going to stick. 38 degrees in Minneapolis, St. Paul. I'm coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. And um, please go to... WCPTA20.com and AM950radio.com if you want to stream. And then meet my morning stars on the Santita Jackson and Friends page on Facebook and on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel. We've got a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking, continuing this discussion on education. So many of you want us to talk about it. As we talk about crime, and we'll be talking about that, as we look at the issues driving the Chicago mayoral race, Education is something, it's like the big elephant in the room. No one really wants to talk about it, but you've got two educators running to be mayor, right? The former CEO of the Chicago Public Schools and a union leader. So we're going to be talking about that today. What is the future of public education in Chicago, indeed, in the rest of the United States? I'm Santita Jackson. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278-773-763-9278 and join Eric and Linear Bob and Eric and Daryl and Shirley from beautiful Philadelphia and Antho, how you doing from France? Hey, 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 Carol getting up there real early in L.A. And um, so many of you, Mark, hey, hey, give our love to Lorraine, sweet Lorraine and Jewel from New York and Robert. So many of you joining us so early this morning. So, And everyone, please like and share the show. Like and share the show. Like and share the show. And then I want you to call in and weigh in on education. What about public education in Chicago? Uh, should we have more privatization of public schools? Or should we try to really work on building or rebuilding our neighborhood schools. Let's talk about that on the Santita Jackson Show. In the NBA, everybody, the Suns will be playing the Bulls and the Timberwolves will be playing the Lakers. That is tonight in the NHL. The Stars 5, Chicago 2, and the Wild 2, and the Canucks 1, everybody. Major League Soccer will see Chicago facing off against New York City, but Minnesota won't be playing again until the 11th a week from now. We're going to have Julian Malvo with us today and Dr. Michael Beyer and Attorney Robert Tillo and uh, Pastor Darius Brooks will join us shortly and Dr. Shanina Knight and of course, let's get some of these headlines. Wow, everybody's been paying attention to this case in South Carolina. Alex Murdaugh, uh, a scion of a great uh, family in, you know, certainly very well-known family in South Carolina, uh, disgraced Attorney, well, his trial garnered national attention. People were shocked about the brutal murders of his wife and son. Well, he was found guilty last night. After more than a month of listening to dozens of witnesses, jurors took less than three hours to convict Murdoch on all four counts. He will be sentenced later on today, 30 years. It could be uh, life without parole. We will see, everybody. 
President Prince Harry and, and his wife, Meghan, have been asked to vacate the residence gifted to them by the late Queen Elizabeth II. Quote, according to a spokesperson who spoke to CNN, quote, we can confirm the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have been requested to vacate their residence at Frogmore Cottage, close quote. The statement followed a report in the British newspaper, The Sun, that claimed the pair were being evicted from the property which is owned by the Crown Estate and that it had since been offered to Prince Andrew, one of King Charles's brothers. According to The Sun, the couple was reportedly asked to leave the property days after the release of Harry's memoir, Spare, in January. Tennessee has become the first state this year to restrict drag show performances. Republican Governor Bill Lee signed a new law uh, Thursday to limit adult cabaret performances on public property so as to shield them from the view of children threatening violators with a misdemeanor and repeat offenders with a felony. And those are just some of the headlines on the Santita Jackson Show. We are so excited to have the anointed. That's right. Your will is what's best for me, safe in his arms. So many of our great uh, inspirational hits, gospel hits. And um, not just hits, they have just been blessings that will live on through the ages. The great Pastor Darius Brooks, who, of course, they are feeding people at his church. And just very quickly before you get into the good news, where is Grace Central and how can people get something to eat? Pastor Darius Brooks. Good morning, Santita, Great Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois. That's right off of 290 and Mannheim. We serve from 5 till 7 every Tuesday. And on Wednesdays for seniors, because we don't want them out in the evening, we serve from noon till 2. And that's every week, every week. And we don't give peanut butter and jelly. We give two and $300 worth of food in boxes every week, chicken, shrimp, salmon, produce, jiffy mix, yeah. eggs, milk, cheese, the whole night. We give it every week. So if you know anybody who's in need of food, we are happy to serve. We are happy to be here for the hungry, to feed the hungry, to heal the sick, to set the captives free. We are literally and figuratively doing this. And Santita, I can't do it on my own. That's why I'm so excited about the Word of God in our lives. As a believer, this is what we do. If you are a believer, this is what we do. Santita, there are three positions in life. There are non-believers. Those are atheists. They are justified to believe what they want. They do not believe in God. They have a position. Santita, there are non-believers, which is a person who believes God but won't do what he says. Even with the intellect and the money that we have, they believe God, but they won't literally or figuratively do what they said. And Santita, then we have the believer. Come hell or high water, this is what I do. I have a covenant with God. I'm not in a relationship with God. In relationships, sometimes you feel like enough and sometimes you don't. But when you're in a covenant with God, God has a covenant with us. He's not in a relationship with us. God is going to do what he says no matter what in our lives. We have to create this covenant with him, which takes me to Philippians 4, 12 through 13. Various often tell Grace Central, the word of God is a mirror. It's not a window. It's a mirror. I do it for me, whether somebody else do it or not, and it's changed my life forever. So uh, Darius, yes, God, Philippians 4, uh, 12 through 13. I know both how to abase and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I am instructed both 
to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I'm going someplace, someplace with this. And Peter, Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Indeed, if I had the use for thought this morning, I'd tell somebody this under the sound of my voice. God's promises are not necessarily what you think you want, but they are getting through things. God's promises are not necessarily always what you want. The strength of utilizing God's word is getting through things. Sentita to a believer is an intimate and growing covenant. The word of God is not a set of doctrines to just think on or habits to practice or even sin to this matter to be avoided. But every activity of God's commands is intended to enhance his love covenant with the believer. God gave us a prayer. And prayer is for direction. And he gave us prayer so we could have conversation with him on how to do this stuff. But often we distort this conversation, saying prayers and hurrying off without ever understanding or comprehending his word for direction, which is his desire for us to be directed no matter what. Then the word of God says, I said before you blessings, I said before you curses, I said before you life, I said before you death. Choose life. Santita, he told Darius Brooks this. He told Santita Jackson this. He told Jesse Jackson this. He told Mama Jackson this. The folk that was here before us, the folk here right now, when we dead and gone, God says, I change it not, which is his word. He says, that's me setting all this stuff in front of you. Hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. Yeah, that's me. But I want you to choose life. And he says, in him, there is life. But to be directed through him. Through Santita means we are utilizing God's word for a personal direction. He is through because through is moving from one side of a thing and out of another side of an opening or a channel or a location. When we don't trust God's through, we are using religious activity, not a criticism, just an observation, and it's not bad. And this is apart from a covenant with God. Religious activities are empty rituals. We just do them all the time, but there are no promises, no results from them, not a criticism, just an observation, ain't scared of nobody, ain't hating on nobody. Santita, as I close, the area where all of us often struggle in and most vulnerable are in our motives. And there is a purpose for pain. There's a purpose for life. There's a purpose for a lie. There's a purpose for untrue people. There's a purpose for manipulative people. There's a purpose for honest people. There's a purpose for people who rich. There's a purpose for people who poor. And as I go on to a close, and getting to that mature place, and it's not just what we do, no matter what, but it's how we get through things. The world operates in what they see. God's believer or the believer lives by revelation. Believers arrange their lives based on direction from the word of God with a covenant to utilize him through everything they deal with. The only way for you to know God's will is for him to reveal to you the secret word through that you will never discover on your own when you hear through God's word you have an immediate agenda for your life. And that's obedience. As the writer would say of Proverbs, as I observe, happy is he who keeps 
my law. Hey, whatever you're dealing with, put your big girl panties on and put your big boy drawers on and know that no matter what's going on, you can get through anything. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Amen. And give a shout out to Eric Finkelstein, because guess what? He has been giving you amens and hallelujahs straight through this, along with Robert Williams. That's right. Eric said he loves my will. So you got to give him some special love today. (laughs) Absolutely. Send Eric some love and Robert and everybody. We love Pastor Darius Brooks. Very quickly before I pivot over to Dr. Shanina Knighton, your church, how can we worship with you on Sunday? How How can we get food during the week? During the week, uh, every Tuesday from 5 till 7, and every Wednesday for the seniors, noon uh, till 2. Great Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois. It's also gracecentral.net, gracecentral.net. If you get lost, just go to dariusbrooks.com. The Tommy's Reunion, Darius Brooks, and Grace Central Church are all under there. Every Tuesday from 5 till 7, and every Wednesday at noon till 2 for seniors, we are serving the community and feeding them big time. No, anybody come get fed physically and spiritually at Grace Central Church. I'm a living witness. Love you, Pastor Darius Brooks. Have a safe trip. Get on out of here safely. Give my love to the First Lady and to the First Young Lady. Love you so much. We have got Dr. Shanita Knight, an infection prevention specialist. Um, Indeed, infection preventionist, and she is a registered nurse, Ph.D., so qualified, and we do not take for granted uh, the fact that we have this brilliant woman, this brilliant researcher, this brilliant research scientist with us every day. You know, I have a question for you, because the World Health Organization has been, we're now beginning to hear about something that, you know, quite frankly, prior to my meeting you, I'd never heard about, infection prevention. I mean, as a particular as a particular field of study, as a particular field of practice. And the World Health Organization is scaling up implementation of infection prevention in Iraq, um, in their hospitals specifically. But we see that some of our hospitals in the United States have infection problems, including some of the most prominent ones here in our area. How can a hospital have an infection problem, Dr. Knighton? Good morning. So just historically, I want to remind the audience that there is a such thing called healthcare-associated infections. And it's interesting because the statistic used to be that approximately 1.7 million people in healthcare settings would get an infection. And of that 1.7 million people, a little bit less than 100,000 would die every single year. So that equates to essentially a 275-passenger plane that crashes every day when we think about some individuals that would be put in that situation. When we talk about healthcare-associated infections, and this is not to get political, the landscape changed, Santita, in 2008. And what occurred was the legislation passed, and what it said for CMS patients, so Center for Medicare and Medicaid patients, was that if a patient went to the hospital and they got, let's say, a pressure ulcer or they ended up with 
a catheter-associated urinary tract infection or a central line bloodstream infection, that the cost would be eaten up by the hospital, meaning that insurance would not be responsible for that. Uh, HAI, speaking of like uh, healthcare-associated infection, can run anywhere between $28,000 to $128,000 on average. And some of that sometimes can equate to be more because we're talking about going to the hospital with one thing and expecting another. Sadly, our system was so focused on COVID-19 that in many hospital facilities within the United States, their healthcare associated infection numbers, which were improving prior to the pandemic, are now worse than ever. There's many factors that go into that. The one being that you don't have consistent staff that breathe, that let's say breathe and live the culture of the actual healthcare um, facility or healthcare system that they work for, because there is a lot of travel staff, which means that if people are coming and going, you don't have a way to really hold anybody accountable. You also have another factor of being. During COVID-19, a lot of the quality metrics that people would have to report were suspended because we were considered to be up under emergency conditions. Another issue that we had is when we talk about personal protective equipment. Personal protective equipment, as many of us can recall, during COVID-19 was scarce. We faced shortages. We had to ration, you know, different items that you would typically use in order to be able to prevent infections. And it was unheard of that you would have to use a mask over and over and over again. And that you use that mask on multiple patients opposed to having to use that mask per patient, specifically thinking about uh, N95. So when we look at these types of situations and we say that World Health Organization or other entities are scaling up infection prevention and control in other places, we still have these same issues here. And I'm just speaking of healthcare associated infections, and I have not even tipped the surface when we talk about community-acquired infections. And that means that there are illnesses that happen within communities. And I know I won't get into too much detail, but when we talk about, let's say, hygiene poverty, and we talk about, let's say, mold and mildew that might be, you know, within somebody's living environment, someone that has unclean or standing water that may carry fungus or bacteria, these are things that occur within the United States. So it doesn't take us to go far in order for this to occur. When we think about places with well water or, you know, they have unclean, let's say, unclean running water or unfiltered water, what does that do? And so when you mention infections in the U.S., and I won't speak on, like, let's say, Dr. Gibbs' story, but with her mission-driven passion of epidemiology, she talks about one of her parents being ill because they ended up acquiring an infection and that being the thing that ended up um, taking them from the world. Mm -hmm. It happens many times to a lot of individuals, but it's something that we don't talk about as much as we should. And so when I emphasize things in my science, such as patient hand hygiene, which is 
the patient's ability to be able to clean their hands because patients' hands acquire germs too. It is to help to decrease their risk for infection when they may be vulnerable to a healthcare worker that doesn't clean their hands appropriately, to a medical device that doesn't get cleaned appropriately, to an instrument that may have had a recall on it, and so many other instances that can happen that will put them at risk for illness even though they're going to the hospital to be treated for something else. Everybody, please take care of yourself and wash those hands. Oh, my gosh. Hey, Dr. Nina at H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. You need to follow her on social media because I tell you, you're going to be reminded, you're going to be informed, you're going to be inspired. Sending you much love today, Dr. Shanina Knight. And let's talk about education. Let's talk about education, everybody. It's like the big elephant in the room. We have two educators, two educators. More and more educators are getting involved in the political space, but two educators, one of them will become the mayor of Chicago. Will it be the person who really pushes for the expansion and the bolstering of public education, or will it be for someone who is into more of the corporate model, privatizing it. What do you think, and what do you want more than that? 773-763-9278. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. We are in the throes of the election. Okay, we have the prime. Well, it was the election this week, but no one came up with 50% plus one vote. So now we have got a runoff between Paul Vallis, the former CEO of Chicago's Public Schools, and former CTU organizer and leader and former history teacher and in the Chicago Public Schools, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who's going to win? Well, Chicago should win. Who has the best plan for Chicago? Who has the plan for Chicago that you want to see implemented? You know, and at the end of the day, what do you want? What do you want our public schools to look like? Do you want them to obey the corporate model, or do you want it to be uh, more of a populist model where, you know, the neighborhood schools had vibrancy? Uh, what do you think? Or should we just really move toward the test and getting... Uh, and just really pushing that kind of academic achievement. What about vocational education? We have a lot to talk about today. And um, and how has it been working out for us? Call us at 773-763-9278. And is there some kind of intersectionality between uh, losing 50 schools and the rise in crime? Think about that, everybody. I think that there is, because when you cut off people's options, their life options, uh, it is diminishing to people. And people participate in crime because they have been diminished. Let's talk about this, everybody, at 773 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. Before we bring on Dr. Michael Beyer and Attorney Robert Patillo, we have got Chaperl the Pearl. I'm going to make you like Earl Monroe from back in the day, the, the basketball player. You've got a big event tonight, of course, uh, honoring the life of your son, Courtney. Courtney Copeland, uh, but really helping so many young people get to college. What's going on tonight, Chaparral? Even in the snowstorm. Yes, yes, we will be having the show 
snow or not. So please come out and support the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation Gala. It's tonight at the JLM Community Center, 2622 West Jackson. It starts at 7 p.m. Tonight we'll be having live entertainment as well as also some great food and fun. And we'll be wrapping a 55-inch TV, an air fryer, and also a 50-50 raffle. So come out and have a great time. You won't be disappointed, and you'll be having a good, uh, uh, helping a great cause, which is uh, uh, helping to put our kids in college. So please help uh, support us at www.copelandmemorial.com. Thank you so much, Santita. And the address again? It's 2622 West Jackson, and that's the JLM Community Center. Okay, okay. All right. Tonight, everybody, this is the night. This is the night. Get on over there. And then go to what is the, it's, what is, it's the Courtney Copeland Memorial Foundation. I mean, what is, what is your website? Yes, www.copelandmemorial.com. Copelandmemorial.com, everybody. You can make a contribution today. Blessings to you. Let's go to Dr. Uh, Oh, boy, Dr. Michael Beyer and Attorney Robert Patillo. You know, it seems that we have two candidates who have, who are ideologically, you know, I'm not going to say opposed, but certainly they are on opposite sides. You have someone who leans right, who's promising more police, more charter schools, and more fiscal responsibility, okay? And he's got a lot of, believe me, a lot of black, I would say black middle class at least, support, I mean, a lot of high-profile uh, African Americans, black folks in Chicago, are supporting Paul Fallis. Do not be fooled. His opponent, Commissioner Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson, who took twenty percent of the vote to his thirty-three, almost thirty-four percent of the vote, he ran on raising taxes, and criminal justice reform, um, and um, so. What do you think about that? And then people are saying, okay, he's saying defund the police, but is that all that he's saying? Well, let's talk about this, and let's talk about where they would take education in this city. Where would they take education in this city? Let me start with you, Dr. Beyer. Where would, where, ha, where have they both sought to take our education system, and why is that important, Dr. Michael Beyer? Yeah, so I think um, what you start off the top of the hour as far as corporate versus um, you know community based, you know that, that that might you know give an impression of what it entails, but a better description might be top down versus uh, democratic or you know, all de democratic. Because <laughs> what you see is that Paul Dallas has a clear history across four school districts that he has run, and he has implemented top down changes. Uh, sometimes, you know, he adopts some changes that are supported by, you know, in one instance, one, uh, by a teacher union. Uh, so he does, you know, consider other people's ideas, but for the most part, they're top-down changes that have consistently across Chicago, Philadelphia, and New Orleans. When he leaves, which is always like, you know, anywhere from, you know, a few years later, it's, there's often a debate about whether or not his changes and reforms actually improved anything. In two clear cases, in Chicago and Philadelphia, it left the school districts in worse financial shape than when he started. Uh, Chicago, to this day, he is uh, credited, and not in a positive way, with putting the district in a position where it is now, which is a significant pension holiday he instituted, meaning he didn't pay off the pension, he kicked the can down the road, and as a result, we're still paying that off. 
in Philadelphia, he made massive changes that were not funded. And so even though he has a financial background, that's how he got started in public service. He clearly doesn't do the best job there. So he comes into these school districts, makes massive top-down changes, and then walks away, leaving everyone to debate and hold a bill as to if the changes were any good. And there's significant evidence that a lot of the changes were negative and harmed, and I'm quoting here, the most disadvantaged students. In Chicago, he called homeless families a special interest and refused to follow a legal settlement. In New Orleans, when he left there, he claimed that he drastically improved the school district. But there are reports that he was accused of hiding that demonstrate that those schools were, quote-unquote, improved by, again, harming the most disadvantaged students by pushing them out of school. If you think crime is bad now, what's going to happen when you start pushing out thousands of poor kids with no other options? They go, they go to the street. They go join gangs. They, it leads to lives of crime. So on paper, you can say, oh, he improved the school districts. But then when you dig below the surface and look at the actual data, it's at best questionable and in many cases, he leaves the districts in worse shape. So if he has done that across four school districts, there's four Connecticut being the fourth, and he had to leave there because he refused to even get the legal certification, even though he was given a waiver to do it in 10 days as opposed to 10 months. So four school districts, he leaves with people debating whether or not he improved them or not, and now we're going to put him in charge of the city? And you know, my last point here is that I'll give the government credit that I've met him a few times when I volunteered for Amara Indians campaign, uh, two, two go rounds. Um, so I met him. He's a nice guy. He, he, he genuinely seems like he wants to do well, but I got to say, speaking as a white guy, uh, who's, who's read a few books and, and maybe has opened my, I, I've opened my eyes a little bit here, but it takes a pretty, you know, bold white guy to go around to four predominantly black school districts you know, do some actions that are highly questionable and continue going on thinking that you're the savior that's going to make everything right. It's quite impressive, actually. Well, why do you think he feels he's he's doing good and not doing harm? Because school districts are very complicated. They're more complicated than any organization, any corporation, any business, because they're a mixture of industry, right? There is a, an organizational aspect to schools, but then they're mixed with uh, politics and government. So there's three things, the political realm, the government, and just like the normal day-to-day running of an organizational business level. There's no, nothing else like it. There's nothing else like it. And you have all three of them on top of each other, three of those lenses of how you see the schools. They're very complex. And you can't come into any school district or, or any organization and make massive changes and then walk away two or three later, years later and say, oh, that was good. Usually when you make massive changes, you have to stick it out for five, ten years and stay consistent to make those changes right. But that's what too often what you see is you see leaders come in and make massive changes and they leave touting those reforms. And, and then the house of cards crumbles after they leave. And so a lot of the changes he made, you know, they look good. They might feel good. But there are too many silver bullets in education. Everyone thinks they have the silver bullet for improving education. It makes a lot of people happy by choosing some silver bullets over others. But in the end, if you don't stick with the reforms, 
long term, I'm talking 10, 15 years, they're not going to stick at it. Nothing's going to really change. And that's what you see is that a lot of his improvement in New Orleans and Chicago and Philadelphia came about by basically pushing the worst test takers out of schools, out of the district, and then, oh, miraculously, the school improves or the district improves. Well, anyone could do that. I mean, if you don't count the worst players on a team, everyone's going to have a championship team. That's not an improvement strategy. And that's not good for a city because you end up with a whole bunch of kids on the street. Hmm. It seems like that is where we could be. We could be going in that direction, but you have the power to change that, everybody. What do you think? Call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. What about a system that uh, cherry picks? I mean, Attorney Robert Patillo, because we, you know, we're looking at the the highest test scores and all of that. And, and you know, genius shows up in all kinds of ways, not necessarily in a test score. Some kids also develop later, and, and their genius just remains hidden from tests, and on and on and on and on it goes. What about this fight for, um, well, this fight between the corporatization of the public education system and really, I guess, uh, expanding the public education system? What do you make of that? Well, first, I I think that the Lincoln Mobile commercial for ranked choice voting and why I think mm-hmm. Chicago might want to adopt this, because it seems to me that every single election uh, cycle in Chicago, particularly in the mayoral elections, uh, you end up with a uh, couple candidates at the end where the most people are saying, how the hell did this end up being the only two candidates we have at the end? And mm-hmm. um, Instead of people picking their favorite candidates, they're picking between the least worst candidate. I think ranked choice voting will very much help to ameliorate that issue, um, particularly if you look at some of the other states that have uh, Adopted it, even places like New York that have adopted it. It helps give a more democratic voice to people, so you get more of a, a candidate with more popular support than um, the current system. So I, I think more jurisdictions around the country might be switching to ranked choice voting as something that could really help in Chicago. Well, on the issue of education, well, I think the community has to, has to decide um, exactly what they mean by progress, what they mean by improvement. Are we just trying to get uh, improved test scores so we look good on on paper or look good for federal funding? Or are we looking for actual societal increases in the educational policy? Because if you're looking for the latter, well, then you need a, a candidate who has a holistic approach to education, not just uh, efforts to raise test scores, but ensuring that you have a social system that puts students in a place where they can actually succeed and prosper. Uh, kids who are not hungry generally do better on tests. Uh, kids who uh, come from houses that have electricity do better on tests. Kids who come from houses do better on tests. So there are a lot of big issues that can be attacked uh, before you even get to the classroom on improving uh, student outcomes. I, I do think when it comes to this issue of decorporatization that we are seeing nationwide the continued effort to standardize uh, education to the point that you're taking all local control out of uh, the uh, the educational process, where you're taking all curriculum choices away from parents, where you're taking uh, any experimentation in the classroom out uh, in, uh, in exchange for these models that have worked in other places, uh, where we're, we're ending up with the, a lack of advancement because we're only going towards the, uh, the larger, broader corporate 
system. Uh, when you have candidates that buy into that, uh, they seem to uh, tend to come in with the same dog and pony show, uh, talking about how it will be so much easier to raise test scores, because this is what we did in XYZ. But in reality, I think more communities need to uh, be pushing for more parents' uh, interaction in schooling, uh, more uh, innovative approaches to education, and more outside-the-box thinking, because what we've seen thus far is America has been kind of on the same path for about 40 or 50 years now in the educational system, and that is not something that's keeping up with the rest of the world, that if you put it in an international context, we're no longer competing with students the next school district over, the next town over, even the next state over. Uh, we're competing. This generation of students are competing with people in Mumbai and Shanghai mm-hmm. uh, and Taiwan and Lagos. And if we're not preparing them for that, we will lose our position to hegemonic power. And uh, when we start thinking about it from that perspective, I think that's where you start moving away from that corporate model and start looking at new rubrics that are uh, more effective. Well, let me ask you this, Dr. Beyer. I mean, you've been a principal in one of the leading schools here, really in the nation. I keep hearing people say that we need to adopt a new model of education, that, you know, the model is old. It is not applicable today. How should or how would you, do you think that education needs, public education needs reform? Should we be teaching differently? Is there anything that we should be doing differently um, in education today? I think... um and it's not like the school uh, that you alluded to being uh, top of the nation. It was actually just a public neighborhood school. And one reason why it was so good was because of the massive segregation in the city <clears throat> that if you serve, you know, students with, uh, you know, who come from wealthy homes and whatnot, mm-hmm. you're more likely to get good test scores. So, well, no, but, but say that because there is a, isn't there a correlation between test scores and parental income? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very close correlation. Um, it's not the only factor, of course, but very strong correlation. I mean, when you have money, you can throw you know your kid into tutoring and test prep and all the services that the public uh, district doesn't afford. Uh, but as far as reforming education, you know, in my personal opinion, the biggest reform we have to do is, is get uh, non-educators and uh, you know these silver bullets out of education. One, one book, I, you know, about I've read a lot of books on education, but there's about three or four that I always go back to. One's called. Um, so much change, uh, or so much, so much reform, so little change. I'll get a, a switch there, but it's by Dr. Charles Payne, University of Chicago, a professor, um, and he described how during Arnie Duncan's tenure, uh, Chicago Public Schools went through reform after reform after reform, change after change, or or they implemented all these things, and in the end, you barely saw the needle move at all. And what's happening is in education is that there's a lot of fads, you know, a lot of popular things that come in, the newest technology, the newest app, the newest uh, textbook. And we focus more on things that have the least value. Curriculum matters, of course, but we don't spend any time actually developing teachers' skills. You still have teachers who come to school, they clock in, they go to the classroom. You could go an entire day, entire week without ever talking to a colleague in a meaningful way about how you teach. And so we're not developing the actual skill of teachers. It's a simple reform. Just focus on developing the teachers. Because we have great curriculums out there that we can, we can purchase, right, from companies that teachers can develop. That's not the issue. The problem is we, we invest almost nothing in the development of teachers. 
And that's the one change that has to happen, and you rarely see it. All those reforms, you know, I've been reading the past few days over all the reforms that Vallis implemented in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in Bridgeport, in New Orleans. None of them talked about developing the actual skills of teachers. And you look at any of the professions, right? Any of the professions, you know, any other industry, they invest heavily in developing their workforce. In the corporate world, there's a whole movement now to reskill people, to upskill people, to change the adapting workforce. And you see none of it. In, in public schools, in Chicago and elsewhere, you get maybe, if you're lucky, one professional development day a month, and most of that is spent doing paperwork that has little to no meaning. It's just bureaucracy. And there's models out there. You could add an hour to each school day and have teachers work together, collaborate together every day. You might you probably have to pay them for it. Sorry, but it's an investment that would pay massive, massive dividends. You actually see a significant improvement across the board, all schools, all children, if we actually focused on improving the skill set of teachers. What do you make of that, Robert Patillo? No one talks about that. We're always looking at the students. We're looking at everyone, but those who do the teaching, Robert Patillo. Well, well, this is part of what I meant about uh, having that outside-the-box thinking and uh, a holistic approach to education, because uh, sticking kids in front of more tests, that we know doesn't work. I was part of that testing generation where it was the Iowa test of basic skills, mm-hmm. blank, blank test, coming along. And I can I can affirmatively tell you, do not need any research studies or anything. Ain't learn a damn thing from them. Nothing at all. That was a complete waste of time uh, doing that. Teachers began uh, stopping actual classroom instruction so that we could spend two weeks just doing test, test preparation so they could teach us how to fill in bubbles because they understood, understood the school funding and everything else came down to whether or not the kids could fill in the bubbles the right way. Uh, that is not a way to educate children for the next uh, generation. Uh, and this is part of the issues that we run into. So you have to take an approach of saying, well, well we we talk a lot about education, but who's going to come in and talk about raising teacher pay? Who's going to come in and talk about fixing some of the, the uh, structural issues and infrastructure issues in schools? For example, a city like Baltimore. We talked about the number of kids who don't have the ability to read and write and aren't reading at grade level uh, in the city, but they don't talk about the number of schools that don't have air conditioning, so kids can't go there when it gets over about 80 degrees, so they're just wandering the streets. We don't talk about the lack of school buses, so many kids can't even get to and from school uh, because the city doesn't have no school buses or no school bus drivers. Uh, we we don't talk about the lack of funding for lunch programs in the city, so you have kids who are hungry in school because uh, the school either doesn't have enough money to feed them or they have to feed them such low-quality feed. Uh, once you pump them full of salt and sugar all day and then tell them to sit down and read, uh, you're, it's a fait accompli. It's not going to happen. So when we talk about a holistic approach to education, it cannot simply be we need to be harder on the kids or we need to uh, bring in these models from other places. We have to start thinking outside of the box because on the whole, uh, pretty much the educational system for the entire country 
uh, is behind where it should be internationally. Even if you look at some of the best districts, they still don't match up to what kids are learning in other countries. We have to start breaking the system apart from the inside out, getting out of this 19th century model that we are still in, um, which is mainly based on teaching American propaganda for a little bit of uh, information in between. It's more of a, a daycare center to keep watch your kids while you're at work than it is to educate children and really use those hours that we have for classroom instruction um, in a way that is best suited to educate children for the uh, the challenges coming up, not in the next 10 years, but in the next 50 years. Mm. Dr. Byer, the last 90 seconds belong to you. Yeah, there's a lot we can do, but in Chicago, where there's mayoral control, and there'll be a significant influence even after we had like a school board, uh, we, we have to be very careful on who we elect because they are going to have a significant uh, impact on it. And just, in this case, we can just look at their track records. And in one case, one has a long track record going from city to city making significant reforms, and the other one has been community-based, has been listening to people and working with people, building things up at a, at a ground level over years. And it's a pretty straightforward choice, so we've got to make sure that we're careful here. Well, do you see an intersectionality just very quickly between the rising crime rates and closing schools, uh, diminished education options for these kids? I've read the most convincing thing to me is that back in, um, because the crime has gone up everywhere in every big city Mm -hmm. and including rural areas. We're all hyped up because of Fox News trying to blame it on the blue or liberal cities. It's completely false. Crime went up Everywhere. everywhere. And it's directly correlated to the justice system that during COVID, courts shut down. And so that everyone who was accused of a crime got put back on the streets and courts were delayed. Cases were delayed. And you have a backlog of cases. And so people aren't held accountable. It's simple as that. We're gonna, the court system will catch up, hopefully sooner than later. But that's what the rise in crime, in, crime is. And, you know, unfortunately, from Mayor Lightfoot, you know, she was blamed for it all. Um, as every other big city was. But, you know, I want to see a rural mayor fired because they have crime issues, too. (laughs) Absolutely. Let's talk about education, everybody. Do you think that the diminished education opportunities are driving crime? Or do you think it's just it's a little bit more than that? I mean, are we really willing to look at the things that are driving um, the anger and the crime in the United States? Think about East Palestine, Ohio. Did you see that town hall meeting last night? Did you? These people are saying, Norfolk Southern, get us out of here. This place is poison. The railway workers who are trying to remove uh, toxins are sick. They're sick. And if you don't see a connection between all of that, hey, open your eyes, everybody. There's a lot going on. More of the Santita Jackson Show. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Let's talk about this mayoral election. What are the big issues in your mind? Is it crime? Is it education? Is it health care? Is it the fact that two to 200 to 300,000 black people have been pushed out of Chicago because of gentrification? And the, the place is just getting to be unaffordable. Call us at 773-763-9278. Back in just a minute.
This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. It's Friday. March 3rd, 2023, I'm Santita Jackson coming to you from the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, WCPT 820 here in Chicago and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. We're talking about crime, of course. That has been at the center of at least the corporate media shaping of the conversation for this mayoral election and the elections all around the country. But really, in Chicago, we have two educators who are facing off who have who are polar opposites in terms of their approach to education. One is into the corporate privatizing model. The other is into public education. Everybody in, nobody out. Um, and really expanding resources that would go to the average public school. What do you think about that? Uh, what do you think? Call us at 773-763-9278. 773-763-9278. We've got the brilliant Dr. Julian Malvo with us today, of course. MIT, PhD, economist, absolutely the president emeritus of Bennett College for Women, and she is now the dean of ethnic studies at Cal State Los Angeles. So excited to have her. And, of course, attorney Robert Patillo, host of his own show on WAOK. You don't want to miss it. On Sundays, it is on fire from 1 to 4 Eastern Standard Time. Rainbow push. He just does so much. Brilliant civil rights lawyer. And I want to hear from you today at 773-763-9278. Let's get get to some of these headlines on the Santita Jackson show so we can get to the rest of the show as we talk about education. And is there some intersectionality between between rising crime rates in the urban and rural worlds and diminished education opportunities. I want to know what your thoughts are. In Chicago, we're going to have a snowstorm, they say, today. We'll see how much of it sticks. Chicago, 38 degrees will be the high. It's promises to be a snowy, slushy mess. We will see. Minneapolis-St. Paul, 38 degrees, partly cloudy in the NBA. The Suns will be playing the Bulls. The Timberwolves will be playing the Lakers. The Lakers are still, they don't have LeBron James. They might not have him for, well, 10 games. And then they have nine more games. They're really trying to get into the playoffs. So we'll see how all of this works out with the, uh, the highest scoring NBA player in history having just eclipsed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in the NHL. The Stars 5, Chicago 2, the Wild 2, the Canucks 1, and Major League Soccer. The Chicago team will be playing New York City. And, well, Minneapolis United, not till the not till the 11th. You get a little bit of rest, everybody. We have been riveted by this trial down in South Carolina in my father's home state. Alex Murdaugh, scion of one of those prominent families in the state, 54-year-old disgraced South Carolina attorney whose trial garnered this national attention. Well, guess what? He was found guilty of murdering his wife and son, his son in a horrific way. When he was shot, apparently his brain blew out of his head. Who who could believe that? After more than a month of listening to dozens of witnesses, jurors took less than three hours to convict Murdaugh. On all four counts that he was facing later on today, just in a few hours, he will be sentenced. Some people feel that he will be facing life without parole. 
Prince Harry and Meghan have been asked to vacate the residence gifted to them by the late Queen Elizabeth II. According to a spokesperson who spoke with CNN, quote, we can confirm the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have been requested to vacate their residence at Frogmore College, close quote. Uh, the statement followed a report in the British newspaper The Sun that claimed that the pair were being evicted from the property, which is owned by the Crown Estate and that it had since been offered to Prince Andrew, one of King Charles III's brothers. And Tennessee has become the first state this year to restrict drag show performances. Republican Governor Bill Lee, according to the CNN report, signed a law, signed a bill into law to limit adult cabaret performances on public property as to so as to shield them from the view of children. President Biden will sign a Republican author resolution repealing criminal justice reform approved by D.C. government leaders. Remember, D.C. is a district and they have to go for before Congress. The Congress can check D.C. They do not have full agency as American citizens. It's a terrible thing. They were decreasing the maximum sentence for carjacking from 40 years, which is equivalent to a second-degree murder charge, to 24 years. And Republicans have said no, 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 no. And those are just some of the headlines. In the meantime, we have been talking about what? Financial freedom. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac want to turn the numbers around and, and incentivize first-time home buyers. And they're working with Team Hochberg to do it. If you are a first-time home buyer, that is, if you have not owned a home within the past three years, you need to call Team Hochberg, your trusted local lender, uh, because they found that only 26% of the first-time home buyers last year, there was just 26% of home buyers last year were first-time home buyers, down from 34% the year before, and the numbers continue to drop. Everybody, well, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac want to turn these numbers around, and guess what? This program could change at any moment, at any time. So you need to get involved, everybody. They are going to incentivize your home ownership by offering substantially lower rates. If you are in the Chicago area, you need to earn less than $105,700 a year. And you cannot have owned a home within the past three years. You cannot have owned a home within the past three years. And so I want you to call Team Hogberg at 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID, so you can get in on this program. Go to 56david.com, 56david.com, so you can find out what the program is about. If you want to pass on generational wealth to your children, to your grandchildren, and on and on and on, get a house. And this can help you to do it. This can help you to do it. And they will help you to do it at Team Hawkberg, 855-56-DAVID, 855-56-DAVID. Or go to 56david.com so you can read all about it. Let's talk about public education. Indeed, the Chicago mayoral election. Uh, the question uh, for some people is, which way, Chicago? You have two mayoral candidates who are both from the education space. The former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, not superintendent, because remember, we moved to a corporatized model, uh, Paul Vallis, and then a former Chicago Public School teacher, and a uh, Chicago Chicago uh, Teachers Union organizer and leader, Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Who will it be, everybody? Uh, Paul Vallis got nearly 34% of the vote in a nine-person field, and Brandon Johnson got 20% of the vote in a nine-person field. Um, and at least six 
of seven candidates got 36% of the vote. So, look, it could be anybody's. It could be anybody's race. Uh, although it's very interesting, Attorney Malvo, excuse me, Dr. Julian Malvo, as we are, of course, joined by Attorney Robert Patillo, uh, economist, dean of, uh, of ethnic studies at Cal State Los Angeles, president emeritus of the great Bennett College for Women. Um, it's very interesting that we've got these two educators. We have Tony Evers, who's the governor of um, of Wisconsin. He became very involved in the political process, you know, as we've been watching uh, really the corporate overtaking of our public school system. And a lot of educators have said enough. I've got to get involved in this political process. What do you make of what you're seeing here in Chicago and around the country, quite frankly? Because remember, we sent someone who was a privatizer to Washington, Arnie Duncan. You know, this is not the first time we've we've dealt with this, Dr. Malvo. Chicago mayor's race has been fascinating. Um, You've got someone backed by the police union on one hand and someone backed by the teachers union on the other. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of union money uh, in this race uh, in terms of organizing, in terms of ads, of you know, all of that. The unions will be involved. The question becomes, what do you value more, public safety, so-called public safety, because it's not always safe, or education? And that's kind of a stark choice, but Dallas has said, you know, he wants to hire more police officers. He wants more street policing. We know where that has led in, in many black communities. At the same time, I, you know, I am a senior citizen. I deny it, but I am. And I was talking to a bunch of other sisters about my age, and they were talking about their fear of, of crime in the streets. Uh, one friend had her purse literally snatched in, in downtown L.A. The snatched. Some guy came out running and snatched her purse. And she's like, there, she, her thing was, what do we do about that? Where are the police? Why, you know? Why do we have so few officers who are dedicated to safety? But I'll tell you, Santita. Has it been the blue flu since George Floyd? Let's let's keep it real. Yes, there has been. And and they're they're sort of like saying, okay, you all don't like us. Well, we're going to be gone. And many, many police officers are doing that. But the flip side, I, I, you know, if I were voting in Chicago, I'd vote for Brandon Johnson in a minute. I work on his campaign. I think he's a very promising, a very brilliant very uh, focused uh, teacher and organizer. And I think I've been with him on your dad's show in the past. Um, he's very, very good. Now, it's always the mayor themselves is not the issue. It's who they surround themselves with because mm-hmm. the mayor can't do everything. So who will his appointees be? Who will his deputy mayor be? Who will his advisors be? Those, those are important issues and questions. And some of that will emerge during the camp of this last, I guess it's a month we have. Uh, until this mm-hmm. actual election takes place um, in this month, some of the, some hopefully in some of the debates, some of those questions will come up, and I expect that uh, Brandon will pick highly seasoned educators to help him with the work he's doing, but also highly seasoned public public servants who look at other aspects. And I would I would if I were he, I would find a, a, a decent okay a decent public safety person, maybe a former police officer. To help him wade through the morass that has become public safety in Chicago. And not just Chicago, everywhere. We're all talking about crime is up. It's not just up in Chicago. It's up all over the country. And indeed, in Chicago, Santita, as you know, crime is down. 
Patrick was actually down from a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lori Lightfoot um, didn't do herself any favors by not comforting aspects of her record and by, um, well, she just didn't do herself any favors. She ran a poor campaign, and she got what you get when you run a poor campaign. You lose. Uh, and that's unfortunate. But at the same time, this gives Chicago a chance to move ahead and and in a different direction. And Vallis is not a different direction. He will be a retread moving back. So I, you know, I'm intrigued by politics, as you know. Um, enjoy doing political analysis. And when I look at Chicago, it's going to be an interesting, uh, interesting month. Let's just say, uh, yeah, it's going to be an interesting month. But I do hope that the mayor coming in is aware of the issues that are challenging education. Well, what are they? That I, first of all, access. Access to quality education. Quality. Underline the word quality. I mean, some of our schools, they, I, I recently visited a school that had been, um, was built in 1953. Okay? The same year I was born. The school was as old as I was. And it looked like it, too. I don't, but the school did. By that, I mean... Um, it was not a modern building. Uh, the the heating, the HVAC was weird. Um, in some uh, rooms, it was very hot. In others, it was very cold. So something was wrong with this. The, the, the thing just needed to be burned down, frankly, or torn down and redone. But in terms of our infrastructure, too many of our schools all over the country are raggedy and need to be redone, needed upgrade. Well, well, but, you know, hold on, Dr. Malvo, because, you know, and I, I certainly want uh, Robert Patillo to jump in. Those of us who have, the, who have the privilege of traveling around the world, we see how old America's infrastructure is. America was hot, fresh, and new 50, 60, 100 years ago. Now it is old and creaky. You go to these other countries, Dr. Malvo, you see new roads, you see new schools. They're building more Howards and Harvards and Bennetts and Cal State Los Angeles. I mean, they are, and, and hospitals, they're building Mayo Clinics. I mean, they have gone on about their business, and we are stuck. Isn't we're absolutely stuck, and we're stuck. We're stuck because predatory capitalists are essentially extracting surplus value from workers, extracting surplus value from our society. Why don't we have better schools? Not only better schools, as you say, Rhodes, the American Society of Civil Engineers gives the United States a C, if not a C minus. On and, 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 that, and that's higher than it was the last time they did it. We were at a D, what, four years ago. It's unbelievable. Got a, it's got a tiny bit better, but just a tiny bit. And still, you I mean, if you ride down 95 going from, um, let's say, Boston to D.C. or Atlanta, the number of bumpy, you know, just poorly maintained roads um, is is amazing to me. Much of this is amazing, but it's amazing in the negative. How have we allowed ourselves to essentially deteriorate like this while at the same time where you have these raggedy schools, you also have these state-of-the-art schools. Often they're private schools. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they're in school districts where, of course, the tax base is bigger and the school boards are more progressive and the schools are newer. But, you know, when you look at these newer schools where they are, the demographic is not does not favor black and brown people. The demographic is mostly white. So you're ending up with educational gaps that um, will persist into the maintaining of our society 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Hmm. Robert Pacillo, what are your thoughts? 
with this creaking infrastructure. And, I mean, I'm just worried about, well, you know, we have at the very least bifurcated the system. You know, it's it's clear some kids are being programmed to make it and some kids are not. You look at the resources that have been availed to, to different kids, and it's on different sides of town. It's completely different, Robert Patillo. Well, you know, I think the biggest thing that we have to understand is that this is not on accident. This is not the system malfunctioning. This is the system operating exactly as it was designed to function. Uh, they trained one group of people to be the leadership class, the aristocracy in this country, and they trained the rest of the country to know just enough to be able to push the buttons at the factory uh, to keep the machinery of capitalism working. And that's just the reality of things. You have to have a certain number of people filling up the jails. You have to have a certain number of people uh, digging the ditches. You have to have a certain number of people making sure that the rich people have something to uh, to walk on, and that's what the that's how they structure our educational system. The people who are at the top of the economy, they don't send their kids to uh, the same schools that the rest of us go to. I think that particularly for elected officials, I think the uh, elected officials' children should have to go to the schools that those elected officials uh, are voting on. It's never made sense to me to have mayors and city council people and uh, county commissioners, aldermen on down the line. And all their kids are in uh, parochial or private school or Catholic school, uh, but they're voting on issues for the school districts that won't affect their children. I, I don't think that has ever made sense. And as I said earlier, when we're talking about uh, addressing issues of education, it has to be a holistic approach. You have to deal with the fact that uh, some of these kids are coming and being dropped off in brand-new Mercedes, and other kids are walking through uh, crime-ridden, drug-infested streets to get to school. And you have to take that into consideration when you're dealing with scores. You have to deal with the economic aspects where if the only meal I'm getting per day is at school and the rest of the day I'm starving, uh, and on weekends I'm starving, then my test score is going to be significantly different than uh, students who don't have to go through that. When we're looking Absolutely. at the, uh, the issue of two-parent households and having somebody who's able uh, to help you with homework at night, well, we need to create a social structure to give parents more flexibility. So there's a long panoply of issues that don't simply involve giving more tests out to kids. And until we realize that, we'll keep spinning our wheels and falling further behind. Limo, what's your take on that? Well, on, all, on, all of, on all of this? Hmm? Is Limo still there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Okay. Now I can. Hey, what's going on, honey? You've got a couple of minutes before we go to break. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes. Um, Malcolm X once said that um, only a fool will let his enemies teach his children. Uh, we got a lot mm-hmm. of enemies. We got a lot of enemies teaching our children. Uh, the industrial trades. Uh, that's what we need in the high schools like it used to be back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, industrial trades and all uh, public high schools. Anything less than that, other than that, would be uncivilized. And when them candidates, politicians that come on your show, would you please uh, tell them that we demand industrial trades in our public high schools and can they deliver that uh, 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 can they deliver that when they come on the sh- uh, come on the show? And uh, and that's that's what we need, and that will reduce crime, and that will build black institutions starting from industrial trades. And uh, what do you think about that? 
Well, you know, Carter G. Woodson said the same thing, you know, that you never hand your child over to to your enemy uh, for teaching. You just don't do it. And we do it. I think that we've got to begin to take control of our of our system. You know, I mean, I, and I would say that I mean, because I, I, you know, I think of my Jewish friends, uh, Limo and and Dr. Malvo and attorney Patillo and how they would go to Hebrew school. You know, and they would be inculcated with their history and with purpose. And, you know, we kind of had something like that when I was growing up, you know, with, you know, when when we had public schools strikes, which we had all the time in Chicago. Uh, you never missed a day because at push and Operation Breadbasket and Operation Push, teachers, some teachers walked the picket line. Other teachers would come over to push and we had them at different churches so that you wouldn't miss a beat with school. And that was a very important thing. Um, and on the weekends at Operation Breadbasket and Operation Push, we were taught our history. And, you know, Dr. Malvo, to me, that's really important. Dwight McKee was on here yesterday talking about connecting your learning to purpose. And when you do that, you understand why you're learning. What do they say the two most important days of your life when you're born and when you understand why? When you understand why you need to learn, what it does, you know, just I got 30 seconds, Dr. Malvo, before we go to break. Well, I like, you know, Saturday schools are really important. What we do for our children outside of formal education is really important. Reading is really important. Um, buying books for our young people. And what's equally important, Santita, uh, Attorney Patillo talked about poverty and eating and all of that. Those of us who are relatively well off ought to be helping others. Our sororities and fraternities, mm-hmm. um, our churches ought to be helping people. Uh, and, you know, some churches are only open on Sunday. Look at all that real estate. What could you be doing? You could be feeding people. You'd be teaching people. So I think that, that we know the education system is somewhat broken, not everywhere, but somewhat. But we also know that we have, we have fixes. In our sororities, we have retired teachers. What y'all mm-hmm. doing? Absolutely. 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 I mean, and, and we, need, we need to be doing it. I mean, look, everybody, you know what Cuba does? You know what goes gets ahead of tourism for them? The exporting of doctors. They went from being one of the least literate uh, uh, countries in this hemisphere before the revolution to being the most literate. They are the most literate, and they have more doctors per pound. They have three times as many as we do in the United States. What are we doing? What are we doing? They export doctors all over the world. That's what they do. What are we doing? We have fewer doctors, fewer nurses, fewer LPNs, fewer people who can actually really clean a hospital. That's its own skill. Something's not right here. Let's talk about this on the Santita Jackson Show. What about education? What do you want these mayors to do when they get into office about education? Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show. And how, how can we hear you, uh, Dr. Malvo and Attorney Patillo? Dr. Malvo, when can we hear you? WPFWFM.org streams Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. Eastern, thank you, yeah. Uh, Attorney Patillo. News and Talk 1380 WAOK, Sundays 1 to 4. All right, everybody, Eastern. Eastern, everybody. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. 
everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. We're talking about one of the issues that is driving this mayoral campaign here in Chicago with Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. It's education. It's education. The corporate media have been talking about crime, 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 but no one wants to talk about public education and where it is going and where uh, Paul Vallis would take it and where uh, Brandon Johnson would take it. Where do you want public education to go? And, I mean, this is, I think it's central to the conversation. If we're going to talk about crime, Dr. Julian Malvo and Attorney Robert Patillo, you've got to talk about education. They closed 50 schools here, Dr. Malvo, in the black community, named after black icons. So you have black teachers, you have black principals, black vice principals, janitors, uh, cooks, and people who served the food, they all lost their jobs. I mean, that's, I think that's consequential, don't you? It's very consequential. It's it's actually disturbing. It it, it harkens back to what happened in New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. When Republicans took that opportunity, I will say Republicans, that's who did it, took the opportunity to privatize the entire school system. Who lost their jobs? Black teachers. Um, and as you say, everybody who was in the queue of serving folks with its education, a lot of jobs were lost. Privatization is a cancer on education. When you take a public school and turn it into a private school, what are you really doing? You're saying that public school standards, are, you don't accept them. So you could have teachers who don't have credentials teaching in these privatized schools. You could have uh, discrimination. They can choose not to hire people of color in these privatized schools. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons why you don't want the privatization. Public education is supposed to level the playing field with education. Unfortunately, the resources have not been there for them to level it up as opposed to level it down. But the resource, when the resources are there, public education is good. And the resources could be there if, indeed, our um, legislators, our politicians, would allocate the dollars for education. Which they failed to do. They simply failed to do it. They've just heard saying, well, whatever. Let the students, get the young people sink or swim. The parents who have resources are able to augment their children's uh, education. I mean, one of the things that concerns me a lot is summers. What happens in the summer? Well, mm. because we basically see a learning loss. Young people are out, let's say, in August, not in August. They're out like in June, May or June, and they come back in August or September. There's a three-month learning loss. And if some of the lessons are not reinforced, the young people have to, they're almost effectively starting over when they come back in to the fall semester. What happens in the summer? Well, in affluent families, people go to summer camp. They may be in summer education programs. They, they're doing something supplemental. In working class households, sometimes the young people are sent to work. They've got to help supplement uh, their parents' income. Sometimes they, they are used as babysitters, so they take care of their younger siblings. Nothing wrong with that, except for the fact that they're not having educational opportunities. This, again, is where if the public sector doesn't step up, basically our um, civil society organizations must. Again, our sororities and fraternities, our civil rights organizations, our Jack and Jill's and others. Although Jack and Jill basically serves affluent parents, and they probably do have um, summer programs. But we need to make sure that young people are having stimulative learning all the time. And, that, and too many young people are uh, basically left adrift. Now, another piece of it, and I'll stop talking because I know the attorney has a lot to say also, but another piece of it is the fact that we have young parents. 
we, we, young parents often don't understand education because they didn't have any idea. And we just have to look at how can we help those young parents then understand what's going on? How can we supplement the education um, that they're not providing for their young people? Saturday schools, after-school academies, all those things make a difference. But you're not over-talking. I mean, please, you've been the president of Bennett College for Women. And in HBCUs, you know, Dr. James E. Cheek, who was the president of Howard when I was there, he said, we are Howard, not Harvard. Do not judge us by whom we bring in. Judge us by whom we produce. So black colleges will take kids who don't have the sterling test scores and they work with them and make them the sterling students. Dr. Ronald McNair, the Challenger astronaut who was killed in that tragic crash, he went to North Carolina A&T. Do you know when he was admitted to A&T, he was an at-risk student, Dr. Malvo, and Attorney Patillo? This MIT-trained scientist, astronaut, was an at-risk student. There was, but this, he was at MIT when I was there, and he was a great guy. It was so tragic to see him oh. die. Um, it was just very, very tragic. And A&T turns out amazing engineers, mm-hmm. um, pre-med students, um, all of that. It's, a, it's an excellent university, and as has been a college, as so many of our HBCUs. And again, mm-hmm. often under-resourced, but still able to produce great results. Absolutely. Before we go back to the callers, I mean, Robert, what do you think? I mean, because, you know, you went to Clark. I went to Howard. You know, it's, you know, I, you know, I see, I, you know, I see that, you know, there are a lot of diamonds who come out of these, out of these so-called under, well, out of these under-resourced situations. I mean, I can only imagine what you would do if you, if you poured resources into these schools, if you had the intention, should I say, Robert, of, of educating these kids. Well, absolutely. And this is one of the, the big things of, of why I went to an HBCU, because when I came out of high school, I wasn't ready for college. And I did not realize that until I got to college, that the, the high school curriculum that I had come from had not educated me, had not prepared me for uh, for graduate or for uh, secondary education. And also, I wasn't socially prepared for college. I needed an incubator. I needed somewhere where I could go to to hatch uh, before putting me out into the broader world world that existed out there, and HBCUs do an outstanding job of that, of actually preparing you to be ready to learn. That entire first year, often in often cases, uh, is preparing you to learn how to learn, to prepare you to understand uh, that, well, maybe you don't want to get an 8 a.m. class on a Friday uh, during the spring semester. You're probably not going to that class. Uh, maybe you uh, you need to understand that you can't use the same study techniques you used in high school uh, as you used in college when it comes to doing term papers, etc. So we, we have to start focusing on pushing these kids out of high school, uh, not just being ready for college, but being ready for the working world. What we're seeing with Gen Z and Gen Alpha is that a college education is becoming less and less important to them. Uh, my, my sister, God bless her soul, my little niece just turned 18 last week. And when I tell you this little girl is trying her best to kill her, uh, in every way, shape, or form, Jesus. Because get, given every benefit, every uh, privilege known to man, going on vacation to South America and the Caribbean when she was a toddler, having everything she could ever want, this little girl don't want to go to college. She don't want to work. She don't want to graduate. She don't want to do nothing. 
And that is coming from a privileged background. So the, the dealing with a Gen Z, Gen Alpha child in the current environment without having the resources to do so uh, is a Herculean task for the beginning. And when you have a social structure that is not interested in assisting parents and preparing these kids for what's going forward, that's how we fall behind internationally. That's how we no longer uh, get to benefit from the Head Start America can have. The reason for that America's in charge of the world right now is because during World War II, when all of Europe was burned to the ground, when all of Asia was burned to the, the ground, America was still uh, standing solid because our mainland didn't get attacked. We took that benefit, we took that head start, and we squandered it. And now the rest of the world has caught up. They're now passing us, and we don't realize that we won't figure it out until we are far in the, uh, uh, far in the rearview mirror with no way of catching up to the rest of the world. Hey, President Carter was asked by President Trump, why is it that Asia, that China specifically, is so far ahead of us? He said, because we're at war everywhere and they're building. Ouch. Let me go to Renee from the West Side. <laughs> it's unbelievable. He said it. That's, and, and, and Trump had enough sense to call President Carter to ask him why. Because, I, I, you know, I've been there. I know, I know what's going on. This, we're falling behind here. And, and there you have it. Renee, what's on your mind today? Is Renee still there? Hello. Okay. Okay. Hello. Now we can hear you, Renee. Hello. We got you. Good morning, and thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, you know, China. My youngest daughter, Candace, uh, when she was a, a student at Vanderbilt, she mm-hmm. uh, majored in honor psychology and minored in Chinese, and she spent a semester in China, where the tuition was much, 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 much lower, even for an American student going over there than our tuition is here. And I guess that goes back to how they really don't want everyone here to be educated. Mm-hmm. But I was uh, I was thinking about the different things that uh, Dallas and Daly did um, from our schools, taking out truant officers from our schools so that students can just get lost and nobody goes to look to see where they are unless the people at your school uh go to check on them uh, with the as a parent looking at what they did to my community i live in Lindale. i used it used to be called uh south Lindale. now the black areas are part of north Lindale. but i went to uh elementary school upper uh the upper grade center at spry which is in little village but my children they started off at pope my oldest daughter and my son started at started off at pope and they had hispanics and it had blacks in it. Then Dallas, he keeps talking about all the schools he built. Well, he built schools in little little village, which drew away the Hispanic schools from Pope School, and it put Pope in danger of closing, which it eventually did because of the uh, decreased population of students. He took Hispanics away from a black school in a city that's so segregated that needs to have different populations um, interacting with each other to lessen the tensions between the races because, you know, there are problems between Hispanic and black gangs. But if you're friends because you've grown up together going to the same school, that lessens that. And speaking of friendships, with all the charter schools that they built in our area where you had maybe one family member 
family to the charter school, the other family members going to the uh, neighborhood school because maybe they didn't have the good test scores or they had uh, special needs or they had learning pro- um, behavior problems, the charters wouldn't take them. They were left at the neighborhood schools. And then Dallas and, and uh, uh, Jerry Chico, under Daly's uh, administration, they started holding schools accountable for their test scores, putting them on probation. Well, they set it up to make it easier to get on probation because they drain the top students from the neighborhood schools. And then you had some students going to the neighborhood school, some going to a charter school. So you have people that normally you met your childhood friends that you could grow up and be friends forever because they were from your neighborhood. They went to the same school that you went to and you bonded. Well, you had some people, especially when they started closing schools, because it started before Emmanuel came in. They closed a lot of schools, too. So you had some kids who had to go further away from their own neighborhood, crossing into what we call different gang territories, which caused violence. Uh, they just they did so much to cause havoc. And when they closed mostly black neighborhood schools, but the Hispanic schools that they did close were in neighborhoods that just happened to be gentrifying on the north side. So everything he did was for a business model, yes, but a business model that saw no value in blacks and some hmm. Hispanics if they were in the wrong area. But he did build a lot of schools in a little village, but he did that to divide and conquer the black Hispanic coalition that had formed, you know, when Harold Washington was um, elected into power. They knew what they were doing. Divide and conquer always worked. They divided people in our community, like I said, sending some students to this school and some to a different school. We had a revolving door of educators coming into our school. You guys talked about it yesterday. Teach for Chicago started mm-hmm. under daily. They brought in people from outside. They brought in people, some of whom weren't making it in their own businesses. We had an attorney who came in. She couldn't even hack it from September to November. It was a revolving door. Who did it hurt? It hurt our children. It hurt our neighborhood schools. Then that morphed into Teach for America. They brought in people from other cities and even other countries to come teach in our school. But they were limited to our schools. They couldn't go into the uh, schools and areas with people who were more affluent. As if they but were you know, but hold on. Students. No, they were you, training them. Uh-huh. But you bring up something, you know, because Dr. Malvo and Attorney Attorney Patel, you remember during Hurricane Katrina how the Department of Labor, you would pay special attention to this, Dr. Malvo, as an economist. Remember the Department of Labor relaxed their labor rules so that they could bring in uh, lower-paid labor from South and Central America to rebuild the Gulf region. You remember that, Dr. Malvo? Oh, no, absolutely. That They did all kinds of... Yes. And in, in the name of emergency, actually, what they did was mm. to hurt organized labor, uh, because basically their people could have done that rebuilding. There were enough people to do it. But, no, it was cheaper to bring in these other people. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's like we haven't gotten over the need for slavery. <laughs> you know, we really? still don't want to pay people for that. There will be the United States worth not enslavement. And what the sister is saying about the revolving door is so important. Teach 
for America, as far as I'm concerned, it's a bogus program designed to have uh, dilettante, basically, dilettante folks who would do two years teaching. They, have, they get six weeks of training before they come in, and, and then, then they're there for two years, and then they're gone, if they can hack for two years. So the revolving door is real, and as opposed to 20, when the school is connected to the neighborhood and the people are all there, you have the same teacher who's teaching. First, she had, she's had Santita, then she has Jesse Jr., then she's had Jonathan. You know, so the family, everybody knows, so you don't fool with Mrs. So-and-so because she knows y'all. And that's, Absolutely. That is just much more important. And you have these revolving door folks who come in, go out, come and go out. But the, the sister's right on point with her analysis. I really appreciate it. Oh, I do, too. And she is a teacher and a, top, a top-notch top teacher who produced top yes, students, and her children are very high-performing professionals. I mean, look, the public schools can produce the best students if that is the intention. I mean, Robert Patillo, if that is the intention. Intention guides everything, Robert Patillo. And I think that's what concerns me about this election and all of them. You know, because I see the corporate is, well, you know, America's business is business. Let's be honest. The imperial project is about business. It's about these European countries coming over here and taking the resources from, uh, from the, from America and, 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 and profiting off of it. I mean, that's what they do all, all day long. But this is, I think we need to be concerned about education. As we talk about crime, Attorney Patillo, you got to look at education. You got to look at education and how we're going to educate our kids. And young adults and retrain adults so they can get other jobs, which is what they do in other countries. Absolutely. It's always interesting to me when uh, we have these discussions about jobs and education. Uh, we we kind of reflectively go back to saying, well, we have to start teaching these kind of industrial, uh, factory, trade skill type jobs, where there absolutely is a necessity for that. But if you look at what's going on across the world, uh, in China, instead of teaching their kids how to build and fix things, they're teaching their kids how to program uh, things. They, they're teaching people for the digital economy that's going to be dominating the second half of this century. Uh, They're training people not so much on how to work with their hands, but how to work with their minds and understanding that if you can uh, control the uh, information technology of the next decade, that you can put yourself in a position to control the next century. And we haven't figured that out in America yet. Uh, Even among the people who are wealthy, even among the good schools here, they still haven't figured out what's going to be needed to dominate the next century while there's this was time concentrate on what we did in the last century. And when we're looking at the students, we're looking at uh, what has to happen going forward. America has to get out of this concept of winners and losers in education. This idea that, well, some kids have to lose in order for other kids to be able to win. Because we do not have people to spare in this global uh, uh, battle that's, uh, that we're currently in and that we're currently losing. We have to ensure that everybody's educated. Because at the end of the day, we have about 340 million people in this country. China got a billion. India got a billion. Uh, uh, Africa will soon have a billion. 
Yeah, we'll soon have a billion. So we're 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 already behind population wise. We're already behind education wise. We're already behind socially. Uh, other than military, uh, that's the pretty much the only thing we're dominating in. And there's only we can't have smart bombs and dumb kids in this country. So we need to start taking this as seriously as we uh, take military spending. And until we do so, we'll continue falling falling behind. Hmm. Dr. Malvo, the last two minutes belong to you. First of all, Robert, when can we hear you on Sundays and where? You can hear me Sundays, 1 to 4, News and Talk 1380 WAOK. You can also be found on the Odyssey app. Oh, yeah, and also I'm on Roland Martin's show every Wednesday, 68. All right, all right, all right. I love it, I love it, I love it. Dr. Malvo, before you give your closing remarks, where can we hear you on your radio show? WPFWFM.org live streamed uh, Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern. I also show up on Roland Martin's show on Monday. I'm, I'm there most Mondays, uh, 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern. And she'll so soon be on Facebook, everybody. She will. We're, we're going to work on that. More frequently. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, you know, Robert has made some really good points. That, and and the, the fact is that we've seen the only thing we can count on is change. And the pace of change has intensified over the past. I remember giving a speech in 2000 uh, about the pace of change to, I think, my sorority, Delta Sigma Theta, of course. Come on, uh, sorority. Yeah, yeah sorority. I, I remember giving that speech to talk about the pace of change in 2000. Remember, we were thinking Y2K, everything was going to fall down, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. But the pace has artificial intelligence. Students are getting robots to write their papers. Yeah. It's amazing. So we have, we're not on top of it. China's on top of it. India's on top of it. China, India, and Eastern Europe are producing more engineers than the United States of America. And this certainly has something to do with the crumbling nature of our infrastructure. When, who's studying water quality when we have issues like Jackson, Mississippi, Flint, Michigan, and so many other cities that aren't even mentioned that still have water issues? We, lead paint is still at our schools. We, we just have that futurism. Uh, we have not looked at futurism, and certainly in the black community, we have looked at Afrofuturism. What does the future look like for black people? What will we be like as a community, as a people, in 10, 20, 40 years, given the the technology and everything that's changing so rapidly? We, again, we're just not on top of it. And I don't think we're trying to be on top of it. I think too many people are too indifferent to what's going on. And that's the, that's a tragedy, and it is going to cause our nation to simply self-destruct. Everybody, get involved. Get involved. Your vote matters. Your voice matters. You matter. Please vote and make a decision about whoever wins. I have my preference, but quite frankly, whoever wins, they will be your mayor. You are the one who controls the kind of education that our children will get. Remember, voting is the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. After you vote, no matter who wins, then you must advocate for yourself. After Whether you get who you want or not, you better get what you need, always. That's politics. It's, it's for grown people, and that is what we are. See you on Keep Hope Alive on Sunday, and um, I'm going to be speaking to the black media in about an hour and a half, and I'm sending everybody much love. Love you, um, Attorney Robert Patillo. Love you, my dear Soror. 
and um, lifelong friend. Uh, you know, I just met Robert, but he's I, he's my little baby brother. But I love you, Dr. Julian Malvo. Admire you so much, and just um, you're just the best. You're absolutely the best, both of you. Love you, everybody. See you, see you, see you on Sunday, and then again on Monday, Lord willing. God bless. Thank you.